So if you would, turn back to Hebrews 7. Hebrews 7, I'm going to conclude the second part of a message I began last week on Jesus, our high priest. Last week, we considered verses 20 down through verse 24, and this morning we're going to look at 25 through the end of the chapter. Let me read those verses to you. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 25. These are the words of God. Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. But the word of the oath which was since the law maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Back in 2020 when the craziness of COVID-19 first began, Pope Francis made a public statement and he said that those who could not make it to confessional could in the meantime confess their sins at home directly to God. And when I heard that, my first thought was, wow, too bad no one throughout church history had ever thought of that before. (laughs) Uh, But as I continued to consider what the Pope had said, I was reminded of the sad bondage that is created by a religious system that teaches men to rely on other sinners to bring them to God. Such a system is the bedrock of the papacy, and it is the essence of what it means to be the Antichrist. I don't believe that's an exaggeration. Because what we find in the Bible is that Jesus Christ, the great high priest, is the only one... The only one, the only one that can bring you to God. And so any religious system that would substitute Christ alone for anyone else, be it a prosperity preacher, be it the Pope of Rome, or be it your own self, is Antichrist. But such a system is not unique to Catholicism. It really is the problem of every lost sinner. The reason why men don't come to Christ is because they think that they can come to God on their own. Through philosophy, through education, through the giving of money, through the vanity of their own works, lost people think that they can attain success and value, that they can attain worth through the things that they do. The lost man thinks that he is a good person. If you were to ask the average person on the street, Are you a good person? They would say, well, I I make mistakes, but yes, I I believe I'm a good person. And they would give as reasons for that answer things that they have done. But this system, brothers and sisters, it is is anti-Christian. It is unbiblical. It is unbiblical to think that You, because of things that you have done, deserve the goodness of God in your life. This system has has never led anyone to God. It has only led men to eternal hell. Because the truth is that man is anything but good. And the Bible is emphatic about that. There is none good. No, not one. And if you think that you deserve fellowship and communion with God because of who you are, then you have not begun to comprehend the inexhaustible holiness of God and the vile wretchedness of your own sin. Let it be painfully obvious this morning that you cannot approach God on your own, nor can any other sinner like you bring you into His presence. There must be another that can stand before God in your place. This great problem of mankind has 
one and only one solution. The Bible says there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ is the only avenue for sinners to be united to a holy God. Through his priestly work, Christ has removed the enmity between God and man, and he has earned an acceptance before the throne of God. He did what Levitical priests could never do. He did what your own works could never accomplish. He did what the papacy and all other false religions promised to do, but miserably failed to perform. We must abandon all of these vain attempts to find favor with God. That is something that only the sinless Son of God can provide for us because He perfectly performs His work. He has not represented anyone but that He brings about a right relationship with God. He is our advocate in heaven and He has never lost a case. He has a perfect record at the judgment seat. Jesus Christ has never advocated for any sinner that did not receive salvation. And He is the only one this morning that is worthy of your trust, worthy of your confidence, and worthy of your assurance. If you have your trust in anything else this morning, if you have your trust divided up, yes, I I trust God until things start to get tight, and then I'll rely on myself. You need to cast your trust on Him entirely this morning and remove it from everywhere else. Last week, we looked at the nature of His office as priest, but now this week, we will survey the specific functions of His priestly work. And there are two questions that the Apostle, I believe Paul is the one writing Hebrews, that Paul answers for us as he writes in these verses. We're going to answer these questions as we go through this text. What is it about his work that enables him to represent his people before God? And what is it about his character that qualifies him to minister as priest on behalf of his people? There are three things in this text that I want you to see. The first is this, the supreme capability of Christ. The supreme capability of Christ. Look with me at verse 25. The Bible begins... Wherefore, verse 25 is based on the declaration of verses 23 and 24. The declaration that Jesus continueth ever and hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore, because of the endless continuation of his priesthood, he is able. What a divine understatement this is this morning. Here we see God condescending to reveal Himself in a manner that can be comprehended by our human minds. The vast truth of Christ's ability is stated for our benefit because of course God is able. He is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is able. He is externally able. He is eternally able. He is exponentially able. He is inexhaustibly able. He is supernaturally able. Able. All power is His. He is all-sufficient. He is an almighty Savior. He has met the divine requirements. He has accomplished the necessary work. And now today, He possesses the unbridled ability to do what He pleases. He is able. He is powerful. What is He able to do? Well, he's able to do whatever he pleases. But specifically in this text, what is he able to do? He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. He's able to save them to the uttermost. This, I believe, verse 25 is the climax of chapter 7. All this time we've been climbing a mountain. We've been looking at the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. And now we we reach the peak with verse 25. And I want us to stop and to bask in the view of this glorious summit this morning. 
We, we must relish in the truth that Christ is able to save to the uttermost. There's no greater message that I could say to you this morning. There is no more wonderful gospel that could be preached than the gospel that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is able to save sinners to the uttermost. Some versions may translate this phrase that He is able to save forever. That is not a bad translation, but I do believe that unto the uttermost is a better translation because this word here really doesn't find its equivalent in just forever because there's a, there's a dual emphasis here in this word. Being able to save to the uttermost entails for us two things. Number one, it means that Christ did not die to save you from some of your sins. The salvation that he purchased on Calvary's cross was a complete salvation. He has atoned for all of the sins of all of his people. This is the perfection of his work. Christ did not initiate our salvation and leave the rest to us. Christ did not just save you from the sins that you committed before you believed, but after you believed, you're on your own. He did not say on the cross, I have begun it. He did not say on the cross, it is in the process of taking place. He did not say on the cross, someday it will be done. He said on the cross, it is finished. He has done it all. All the sins that you ever have committed, all the sins that you ever will commit, do you realize that you committed enough sins this morning to damn you for all eternity? Because it only takes one. Jesus Christ has atoned for those sins because He is eternal, because He continueth ever. He is an everlasting sacrifice. You will never have more sin in you than there is grace and mercy in Him. But secondly, this phrase, saving them to the uttermost, it reveals the duration of this salvation. A perfect salvation, a a complete salvation, it does you no good if its benefits ever come to an end. An uttermost salvation is a never-ending salvation. His redeeming work is tied to his priestly office. Therefore, he who has an eternal priesthood secures for us an eternal salvation. He saves forever because he is forever. The salvation that Christ secures can never be rescinded. It can never be violated. It can never be halted. It can never be ended. If you are in Christ, you are eternally secure in the hand of the Son and in the hand of the Father, and you are sealed about with the Holy Spirit of promise. Jesus said in John 10 and verse 28, And I give unto them eternal life. By the way, if you have eternal life, You can't lose it or it wouldn't be eternal life. Jesus said, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. To those who would argue that the saints could lose their salvation, I want to ask them, who do you think you are? Do you think you can overcome the sovereign hand of Christ who says, nothing will ever pluck them out of my hand? No matter how far you falter, even on the worst of your worst days, Christ will not let your soul be lost. Nothing remains that could bring condemnation upon you. You you can't lose your salvation because there's nothing left for, for there to be that would condemn you. He has saved you from all your sins, He has removed your guilt. God has separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west, Psalm 103. God has cast our sins behind his back, Isaiah 38. God has thrown our sins into the deepest sea, Micah 7. God has chosen not to remember our sins, to remember them no more. He said, I will remember them no more, Jeremiah 31 and Hebrews 8. When Satan, the accuser of the brethren, when he stands before God and he wants to accuse you for the sins that you commit, God says back to him, what sins are you talking about? 
because he has made his people white in the blood of the Lamb. Christ's righteousness has been given to them. And it is a done deal. It is a finished transaction. There are no refunds. He saves them to the uttermost, who come unto God by him, seeing that he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Now this details the specifics of how our Lord has accomplished this uttermost salvation. He saves his people through an intercession. To intercede means to intervene on behalf of another. And again here we are confronted with the high priestly ministry of Christ as he stands in our place as our substitute. Do you understand that there was a day in your life in which you were lost, which you were condemned before God. You did not know the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God had to do for you to go to eternal damnation would be to leave you alone. God did not have to work sin in your heart. God did not have to form unbelief in your heart. You had those things already. But what salvation was, was God intervening in your life. God intervened. God did not allow you to keep going the way you were going. God did not allow you to stay on that course of sin and death. He butted into your business. And he interposed himself through his son. He interceded for you. It is proper to examine the intercession of Christ in two phases. Certainly the thrust of his intercession took place on the cross of Calvary when he interposed his precious blood and died in the place of sinners. The death of Christ was a substitutionary death. On the cross, the spotless Savior assumed the sin of his people and he was numbered with the transgressors. It was a vicarious death. He stood in our place and he died on our behalf. But, being that he ever liveth, we understand that there is also a present and continuous aspect of this intercession. Jesus is no longer on the cross. Jesus is no longer in a borrowed tomb. Jesus is risen. And when he rose, he continued to intercede for his people. In his continual intercession, Christ does not sacrifice himself afresh and anew. Rather, he magnifies the intercessory sacrifice that he has already accomplished. In this continual intercession, Jesus perpetually sits there next to the Father, still advocating for, still preserving his people. You say, what happened to the body of Jesus Christ after he ascended into heaven? That's what happened. He sat down at the right hand of the Father where he currently sits and he ever lives to intercede for his people. Jesus is the Savior who keeps us saved. Satan desired to sift Peter. Do you remember that verse? But Jesus prayed for him that his faith fail not. And if Jesus had to pray for Peter, the apostle to the Jews, the biblical author, the mighty preacher, then you can guarantee that Jesus has also prayed personally for you. The truth is that Jesus probably prays for you a lot more than you pray to Him. When we stumble into sin and the Father begins to move towards us with divine justice, it is as if Jesus looks to Him and says, Father, Remember what I did on the cross. You have already punished me for that sin. I have already paid for that sin. Give them grace. Give them mercy. What an undeserved comfort it is to have such an advocate that represents us before the Father. If you have need of anything, go and pray to your high priest and he will take your needs to the Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children. If you need forgiveness of sin, go and confess your sins to your high priest who is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins. 
If you need strength to do what God has called you to do, petition your high priest who will be with you always, even unto the end of the world. If you need the comfort of God's love, cry out to your high priest who prayed that the love of the Father, the love that the Father has for the Son, that that would also be in the people that the Father has given him. He's already made the provision to satisfy all of your needs. You cannot have a need that he cannot meet, and there is not a want or desire in you that he cannot fulfill. Our high priest delights in supplying all of our needs. He enjoys fulfilling all of our requirements before God. Never has there ever been a minister that better served his people than the great high priest, Jesus Christ. He ever liveth to make intercession for them. And as we talk about the intercession of Christ, as we talk about how He is saving His people to the uttermost, we we would be remiss if we did not also note the specific objects of this uttermost salvation. Because the Bible tells us exactly for whom Jesus intercedes. It says it right here in verse 25. He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him. This is not ambiguous. This is not unclear. This plainly tells us that Jesus is not the high priest of every man. Jesus does not intercede for all men without exception. We know this because all men are not saved. This is an exclusive group. Jesus intercedes only for those who come to God by Him. And His intercessory work is perfect. Jesus does not fail in His intercession. This means that all those and only those who come unto God by Him shall be saved. This means that Jesus did not intercede for people on the cross that will go on to spend an eternity in hell. This means that Jesus is not currently interceding for someone that will ultimately lose their salvation and be damned. If this were so, then Jesus would be a bad high priest who is not able to save his people to the uttermost. But God is not inept, nor is he indecisive concerning the matters of salvation and the intercession of Christ. God has been settled on these matters from before the foundations of the world. God gave a people to His Son in the eternal covenant of redemption, and it was in that moment that Jesus agreed to intercede for them. May this put to rest any doubts of your assurance this morning. May this give you full confidence that He who called you, He will keep you. Because He has ordained in His decree to fully perfect your salvation to the uttermost. We noted that there are two phases of Christ's intercession. But it must also be understood that there are no contradictions between Christ's intercession on the cross and His intercession at the right hand of the Father. Notice the wording of verse 25. Wherefore, He is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by Him, seeing He ever liveth to make intercession for them. It's the same them. We're not talking about two different groups of people. We're not talking about a hypothetical group that may someday, by the power of their own supposed free will, choose in and of themselves to come to Christ. We are talking about a love gift that the Father gave to the Son before you or I ever existed. Those who come to faith by who come to Jesus by faith are the ones that he presently intercedes for. And those he presently intercedes for are the ones he interceded for on the cross. And those he died for on the cross are those who were given to him by the Father. I want you to hold your place in Hebrews 7 and turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We will see this truth all throughout the Bible. And once you understand this truth, you can't help but see it all throughout the Bible. Romans chapter number 8, let us walk through, beginning at verse 28, let us walk through this section in chapter 8. 
Paul is writing here, and he says this, Romans 8 and verse 28, and I want you to pay attention to all of the pronouns. And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also justified. Whom he justified, them he also glorified. The Bible pictures salvation as this golden chain, and it cannot be broken because it was forged together by the sovereignty of a gracious God who saved his people by his Son. And in this passage, God is dealing with a definite group of people. Notice, he goes on in verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who is the us? Well, it's the them that he foreknew. It's the them that he did predestinate. It's the them that he conformed to the image of his son. It's the them that he saved so that they might be the firstborn among many brethren. It's the them that he predestinated, the them that he called, the them that he justified, and the them that he will glorify. God starts with a group of people in eternity past and he keeps that same group of people all the way to eternity future. There are no dropouts along the way. God does not lose even one of his children. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it. And so he says, Verse 32, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather Watch this, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. And so Paul, with a big exclamation mark, says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Then he lists a number of things that cause you to worry, that cause me to worry, that cause us to doubt. Does God really love me? Am I really saved? Am I really one of His? Are His blessings really upon me? And He lists all of these things and He says, they cannot separate you from the love of a sovereign God. But there's a flip side to this truth. If you have not come unto God by Him, then you have no reason to believe that you are one of His children. This is a truth that pierces unbelieving hearts. Here we see the great necessity of coming to Christ and believing upon Him. You might ask me, Pastor, did God choose me before the foundations of the world? And I would say to you, I have no idea. But I know this. If God has set His love upon you, you will love Him, and you will come to Him, and you will repent of your sin, and you will believe upon Jesus Christ, and you will bear the fruits of one who loves God. If you reject him, you have no part in his intercession. If you reject him, you cannot say, he died for me. If you reject him, you cannot say, he is interceding for me. Because Jesus does not intercede for those who reject him. He intercedes for those who come unto God by him. And that's not harsh, that's not unloving. That's what the text says. Romans 8, in Hebrews 7, and in a bunch of other places. Yes, Jesus has died for whosoever. I believe that. But it is the whosoever that believeth. Words have a context. Without belief upon the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no salvation for you. Receiving Jesus as Lord and Savior is not an option. You understand that? What we're doing this morning, this is not just something that, well, we do this because we just like it and this is what works for us. No. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not negotiable. 
Christ does not offer himself as if there is another choice. There is no other way to God but through the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore the gospel is not presented as a desperate plea, but as a firm declaration of God's grace. By the way, not only does this truth refute the errors of Arminianism, it also refutes any error of some hyper-Calvinistic, fatalistic, deterministic position that would deny the imperative of preaching the gospel. We must preach the gospel. We must preach Jesus Christ. We must tell sinners of the Savior. And we must present the gospel not as a desperate plea, but as a firm declaration of God's grace. I can say to anyone, I can say to anyone, because of what the Bible says, I can say a Savior has died. He has died for sinners. That means you qualify. And He has promised that any sinner that would come to Him through a repentant faith, He would in no wise cast out. He will save you to the uttermost. He will make you a joint heir with Him. He will bring you to God. He will give you all things. He will save you. He will save you. And I don't have to caveat that with if you do this, if you do that, if you join this church, if you give this much. Because it's not about you or what you have performed. It's about Him and what He has done. And He has done it all. Because He is supremely capable, He saves to the uttermost all of them who come to Him. Look back at Hebrews 7. That is the supreme capability of Jesus Christ. But I want you to see, secondly, the spotless character of Christ. The spotless character of Christ. In verse 26, For such an high priest became us. In order to complete the work of salvation, Christ must have first met the requirements of a Savior. But let me just say, He didn't just meet the standard of excellence. He is the standard of excellence. He is ineffably perfect. He is exponentially qualified to fulfill the office of high priest. For such an high priest became us. This is not speaking of his incarnation. This is not saying that Jesus became a man, which that's very true. But when the Bible says here he became us, what what this means for us is that Jesus was becoming of us. He was fit for us. He was a suitable Savior and priest. God in His infinite wisdom provided a Savior that is fitting for the task given to Him. Knowing that we could never become suitable to God, God became suitable to us. Because we could never go to where He is, He came to us. Because we could not ascend to Him, He condescended to us. Our Savior was born as a helpless babe. All the while, He was the Almighty God that held the cosmos together. What gift of grace is Jesus our Redeemer? God ordained the plan of redemption so that we might have a Savior, so that we might have a high priest that is becoming of us. God came to us in the man, Christ Jesus. Jesus is really and truly human. And Jesus is also the fullness of God. He must be truly man because only a man could represent us before God. But he must be God because only God could redeem us from sin and wrath. And none other besides Jesus Christ is fit to be the Savior of sinners. And the author of Hebrews will now list five attributes of Jesus Christ that qualify him as a suitable high priest. And he must have these attributes if he is to bring us nigh to God. If anyone else claims to be the Savior of sinners, you look to these attributes, and if they do not have even one of them, they are disqualified. For such an high priest became us who is holy. This speaks to the perfect purity of Christ. This is his very essence. He is completely impeccable. He is without the slightest blemish of sin. He is faultlessly obedient to the law of God. He was not merely a good man. He is the perfect man. He is far above all other men. The holiness of his nature was imperative 
in order to answer for the unholiness in our nature. Every sin that we have fallen to, Christ has overcome. Every temptation that has overcome us, Christ has conquered. Every hindrance in our service of God, Christ has defeated. Every good work we have failed to perform, Christ has accomplished. Christ Jesus is perfectly, perpetually, and personally obedient to the will of the Father, and He has earned an active righteousness that He gives to His people. An unholy sacrifice would save no one. Christ went to the cross with spotless righteousness to offer up to God, and it was a pleasing sacrifice. Not only is he holy, he is harmless. Holiness speaks to his disposition toward God. Harmless speaks to his relationship with men. As holy, he loved the Lord his God with all his heart. As harmless, he loved his neighbor as himself. He is entirely innocent and blameless. No honest charge or accusation of wrongdoing can be laid against Christ. He never errs. He always does right. Uh, By the way, that's why they crucified him. Because they saw the perfection of Jesus Christ and they hated him for it. They didn't want to have to look at him any longer. Because the very sight of this man was convicting to them. His very presence condemned the consciences of the sinners that observed him. Notice also he is undefiled and separate from sinners. Think of the humiliation that Christ underwent, not just on the cross, but the humiliation of, of even living in this sin-cursed world. He left the splendors of heaven, and he entered this world, and he veiled himself in human flesh, and for 33 and a half years, he dwelt among sinners. He ministered to the ungodly. He was tempted of Satan, yet he was never corrupted by the sin that was ever present and ever before and ever around him. You give me the holiest man of God and you place him in a, in a location where he's isolated from the saints, isolated from the means of grace and surrounded by ungodly influences and he will succumb to them. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. He is the ultimate blessed man of Psalm 1. He did not walk in their council. He did not stand in their way. He did not sit in their seat. Though he lived among sinners, he was infinitely apart from them in nature and character, in motive and in conduct. He was in the world, but he was not of the world. And Christ was as undefiled morally as the priests were required to be ceremonially. He was so undefiled that his holiness overcame defilement. See, if an Old Testament priest touched a leper, the priest would be unclean. But when Christ touched lepers, the lepers were healed. And if an Old Testament priest touched a dead body, he would be defiled. But when Christ touches the dead, the dead are raised to life. How holy and undefiled is Jesus, our high priest. And we too as his people, we are called this day to be separate from sinners. This separation doesn't mean that we are not to love sinners and pray for sinners and help sinners and share the gospel with sinners. Christ did all of those things. To be separate from sinners does not mean being physically distant from them. Being separate from sinners means not living like they live and thinking like they think. Jesus spent so much of his time with sinners, yet he never partook of their sins. He he did not buy into this mindset that, well, I have to engage myself in the things they're doing so I can be relatable to them, and then maybe I'll reach them. If we fall into their sins, and we fall into their way of life, we will forfeit any place of witness and evangelism that we have. So we must strive to be like our Lord who loves sinners, yet remained undefiled and separate. As we go through these attributes, do you read them praying, God, make me more like this. See, the airmark of any true Christian is a desire to be like Jesus. And there is nothing you can do 
to betray your own soul more than telling yourself you are a Christian and having no desire to be like Jesus. You're lying to yourself. This is what our high priest is in and of himself. Because of this, at the end of verse 26, he was made higher than the heavens. After his perfect life and his sinless death, Christ was raised and exalted to the right hand of God the Father. God has accepted the performance of Christ. Do you know what the resurrection was? The resurrection was God the Father stamping a divine seal of approval on everything that Jesus did. Saying, I was pleased with your life. I was pleased with your message. I was pleased with your gospel. I was pleased with Calvary. And because I am pleased, I have raised you again. Had he sinned but one time? While he was on this earth, the gates of heaven would have been barred. He, he would have not been able to return. But because of his utter perfection, heaven could not but receive him. Because he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, he has a place in heaven. What a reception that must have been. Can you, can you think in, in your finite human mind, the scene that went, went on in heaven when Christ ascended up, the king returning after he had conquered the enemy, the savior of the world returning after he had fully perfected salvation forever. The Bible doesn't describe that scene for us. I don't want to be dogmatic, but I can only imagine the angels in heaven standing in awe as the Lord Jesus returned with the holes in his hands and the piercing in his side. And as he marched back to his throne, and as he then offered up his sacrifice to the Father, and as he sprinkled his blood upon the mercy seat, it was finished. Christ had done it. And one day, we will get to see that scene. Christ has ascended to heaven. There's coming a day, brothers and sisters, when heaven will descend upon us. And we will be able to share in the glorious manifestation of our eternal King. The spotless character of Christ, if you are in Him, is now your spotless character. <laughs> if you are in Christ, God looks at you and He sees you as holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and you will one day be made higher than the heavens. Not because of what you have done, but because of Him. It's the spotless character of Christ, but Thirdly and lastly, in verses 27 and 28, I want you to see the stark contrast of Christ to the Old Testament priests. We, we end this passage where we began. We're with a comparison that highlights the supremacy of Christ's priesthood over the Levitical system. Notice what it says in verse 27. Who, Jesus Christ, needeth not daily as those high priests, the priests of the Old Testament... To offer up sacrifice. Jesus Christ does not have the need to re-offer a sacrifice day after day. The priests of the Old Testament, their work was never done. Various, various items of furniture were present in the tabernacle and the temple. Those of you who are, who are up to date on our church Bible reading plan, you're somewhere in the book of Numbers and you have read in Exodus and in Leviticus a very detailed list of all of the items that were in the tabernacle and in the temple. Did you notice one item that was painfully absent? Of all of those wonderful things in the temple, there was no chair for the high priest to sit on. He never sat down. He never rested because his work was never finished. As soon as one offering was burnt up in the fire, the wrath of God demanded more blood and more blood. And this he did day after day and day after day, postponing the wrath of God, covering Israel for a year, only to come back and offer up another yearly scapegoat. And the Bible says he did this in verse 27, first for his own sins. There's your problem. Why was the sacrifice of the priest not sufficient? Because before he could even think about offering up something for the people, he first had to offer up something for himself. 
Do you see the inability of the Old Testament priesthood to accomplish the salvation of sinners? May we never look to fellow sinners to bring us to God. Do not trust in the faith of your parents. Do not trust in the faith of your spouse. Do not trust in the faith of your friend. Do not think, well, because I have Christian friends and because we seem to get along, uh, therefore I must be a part of this too. God has saved many of deceived false converts that sat on church pews for years. Now we see the undeniable superiority of Christ's priesthood. Notice what it says in verse 27. For this he, that is Jesus Christ, for this he did once when he offered up himself. Christ did not need to offer up a sacrifice for himself. He offered up himself as the sacrifice. Christ accomplished in the once offering of himself what the blood of millions of animals could never do in thousands of years. He actually atoned for the sins of his people. His blood did not cover sins for a season. His blood washed sin away completely. His death did not postpone the wrath of God. His death satisfied the wrath of God forever. There is now no more need for any further sacrifice. This is the folly of a works-based view of salvation. Because you must understand that God is pleased alone with the work of Christ. Therefore, quit trying to earn your own salvation through your own works. What an abomination it is to offer up your works before God to earn His favor when God has already made the perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. You are insulting a holy God. I'm declaring unto you, the perfect sacrifice has already been made. And if you are going to try to maintain a relationship with God on the basis of your works, you are saying to Him, Yes, Lord, I know that you sent Jesus. I know He's the perfect sacrifice. But I'm going to choose to offer up something else instead. Just stop. Just forsake your own works. Trust in Christ. The once offering of the eternally spotless Lamb of God, it sufficiently paid the sin debt of His people forever. Jesus Christ is the only one able to take away sin. He is the only one worthy of your trust. After His once offering, He ascended into heaven, signifying that He had finished this work. There is nothing for you to do. Christ has done it all. Come to Him. Receive what He has perfectly performed on behalf of repentant sinners. Verse 28, for the law maketh men high priests which have infirmity. Again, we end this passage where we began. The Old Testament priests met the ultimate disqualifier for ministry, death. They died. And the dead priest saves no one. But the word of the oath, which was since the law, maketh the son who is consecrated forevermore. Far better than a temporary and transient ceremonial law is the forever unchangeable oath of God. The types and the shadows of the old covenant ceremonial law have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is the high priest. He is the bloody sacrifice. He is the altar. He sprinkled his blood on the mercy seat. He brought us into the holy of holies. He is our salvation. And there is a vast difference between the priesthood of infirmity and the priesthood of perfection. One was instituted by carnal ordinance, the other by divine oath. One with corrupt sinners, one one who is separate from sinners and immaculate. One unable to bring you to God, one unquestionably able to do far more than all that we could ask or think. The first priesthood served its primary purpose of pointing the people of God to the great high priest that was to come, and it has passed away. But now Jesus Christ, he serves as the high priest who is consecrated forevermore. He is consecrated in his sinless life. He is consecrated in his obedience. He is consecrated in his sufferings. He is consecrated in his sacrifice. He is consecrated in his present intercession. The law made priests who could not continue, but the Son who continueth ever is consecrated forevermore. 
This passage, brothers and sisters, it is screaming to you that you cannot come to God on your own. You cannot work your way there. No one else can take you there. Only Christ can secure your salvation. Let us sing these words. Let let them be true for all of us. We'll sing in a moment before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me fence depart. I pray that you can sing these words of yourself. Is this your testimony? I can't answer that question for you. Only you can tell me if you right now have a high priest in heaven interceding for you. If not, do you realize how your sins have made you an enemy of God? They must be dealt with. God will not overlook them. You will not work them away. You will not do enough good to outweigh them. They must be dealt with. There stands a priest who is able to make full atonement for them, brothers and sisters. Lay down the arm of resistance. Cast your feet. Cast yourself at the feet of this Savior. See Him interceding for you at Calvary. Trust in His present intercession for you at the right hand of the Father. And may we all be brought nigh to God eternally by Jesus Christ, our High Priest. May the Lord add a blessing to the preaching of His Word as we've been able to consider all that He has done for us as our High Priest. And I pray that those who are here that don't know the Lord Jesus Christ would be introduced to Him by the Spirit of God even this morning. Let us pray to that end. Father, we love Your Word. In it we find all that You have done for us, Your people. We have thankful hearts, rejoicing souls to know that Jesus Christ has perfectly performed all of the works necessary to bring us nigh to you. Thank you, Lord, for what Christ has done. Father, apply this perfect redemption, this everlasting salvation. Apply it to that one sinner who is here, who doesn't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. Reveal to them the glories of Jesus, all that he is and all that he's done. We will glorify you for this. Comfort your own people. Comfort your saints that are all too often carried away by the cares of this world and forget the joy of resting in Christ. Remind us of that this morning. Purify us and sanctify us that we might be holy vessels unto a holy God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.